This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz. Welcome to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on Radio, a weekly show on sustainability topics brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. I am in Fakatani. I am in the kitchen of Mawera Karatai. Can I say welcome, Mawera? <laughs> I can say welcome, Sam. And sitting beside us is Philip Alexander Crawford. Kia ora. Welcome. And it's a wonderful kitchen, it is. <laughs> And we are sitting here today because we are doing a writing camp. Well, I'm not doing any writing. Mawera and Philip are doing the writing because they are at opposite ends of the Doctorate of Professional Practice journey Mawera is about to hand in. And Philip has done the review of learning and is writing a learning agreement. And I thought it would be an interesting thing to do a bit of a compare and contrast and look for links between the work that they are doing. So let's start with Mawira because it might be an easier story to tell. <laughs> it should be coherent at this stage. It, should, it is coherent-ish. Um, it's this moving feast actually. But anyway, um, it's been an incredible three years of self-discovery and getting a real feel for who I am in my professional practice. Um, and... I started this journey with an idea of looking at unconditional positive regard as a model of practice and then realised as I got sort of to this end of the journey that that, it's, that it already is in my practice uh, and, and it's actually really core to the way that I do my work. And the way that, I, that that came out wasn't anywhere like what I had planned in the first place. So I think about, you know, the journey that I thought I was going to take is not the journey I've taken. It's way better. Way better? Yeah. So where has it got to? It's got to um, some pretty cool realisations about the way that I view the world and the way that I, that I practice. And um, for the first time probably in my whole life, I'm actually really aware of the impact that I have in my practice and I'd never really given thought to that and um, as I was funny I wrote a line the other day that, um, about Whakapapa actually and I, I just was listening to you guys talking earlier about Whakapapa but I wrote this line the other day as, um, as a wahine Māori I'm my Whakapapa everyone who came before me everyone come, who comes after me there's this big continuum and I'm forever on that continuum that will never go away but I don't have forever left to make as much impact as possible on this world so that my life actually meant something and and I'm just really consciously aware of that now Sam and you are articulating that into a practitioner thesis yes I am 
that's that it's, it's a thesis so it is a defensible argument if we go back to the root of the word thesis it yep. doesn't mean book but it also means book so mm. it is a book but it's a bricolage it's a collection of things it is so I've been, um, I really enjoyed, uh, actually, when I stopped trying to turn it into what I thought it was supposed to be and just started letting the end result be what I wanted it to be, it started to flow really well. And um, the most fun part for me has been working with um, things uh, like being able to write fictional stories about real life things, fictional ethnography. So, and, you know, we have these patterns that we see playing out in our communities all the time that impact on lots of people or lots of uh, lots of communities um, and they don't always belong to one person and when we see those patterns it's easy to turn them into a story um, that can highlight the, the barrier or the challenge or, or whatever it is that impacts on, on more than just individuals um, so that people can relate to them and we can actually highlight the bigger picture Yes, yeah, so I'm enjoying that. I want to come back to some of those stories because I think that they are in a similar space to what Philip's working on. Cool. Although he's not working directly with the people, he's working direct more with the organisations and, and the, the communities. So, so Philip's, we're at the writing the learning agreement stage. Yeah. Starts with the context. What's the context we're working with? What I really like around this process in my chose this particular style of doctorate is that it's it's building on um, the whakapapa and the hikoi that I've been on so far and it, and it's almost like a we were talking earlier about chapters um, and this is another chapter um, but I'm not sure if it's going to have a have a uh, conclusion, but it certainly will lead into other people's, um, will hopefully support other people's journeys as well. So my context is I have uh, done a lot of work in the legal area, um, including uh, co-authoring half a commercial law textbook. Um, and operating in that Māori detility of Waitangi space, um, which has really led me to to where I think um, there needs to be more work around um, how those partnerships between between Māori uh, and the Crown and Māori uh, and non-Crown based organisations, um, how those partnerships can be formed um, in a better way. Um, so at this stage, my study is looking at at how, how that initial engagement can occur. Um, and I'm hoping that it'll lead through to... Um, rules or guidance based on principles that others can pick up um, and apply um, but I suspect it'll, it will continue to develop um, not only in my own practice or through my own practice within the organisations that that I'm fortunate to be involved with um, but also by others who, who can pick that up and continue that 
that hikoi um, of discovering how how that uh, relationship between Māori and non-Māori Māori can be beneficial, more beneficial to, to both groups. Um, my work context is uh, in education um, and faith-based organisations. So within education, I work for Te Pukinga, which is um, working to, to create a, a stronger network of vocational education as part of the reform of vocational education and um, that's in the Māori Partnership and Equity team and the faith-based organisations are um, here in New Zealand uh, but also have have a, a wider uh, uh, worldwide connection and network so I'm hoping that that it'll also be picked up um, out amongst that network as well as a model of doing partnerships yeah in general or partnerships in particular with indigenous communities in particular with indigenous communities yeah although the contexts differ um, across across the world um, many organisations, not just crown-based ones, but many organisations are looking to how they can decolonise their own practices and um, and create the space. A lot of my conversations at the moment is about creating the space for other people. Because if you don't create the space, you're you're making that other that other party push their have to push and prod their way in um, and so it'll explore power and control um, if you control the space then you really need to consciously look for ways to to, to free it up to open the gates um, so that people can come into that space as they choose to and um, participate in the ways that they they want to so it'll be exploring cultural difference as well and, and how that can be reconciled because, of course, it's about partnerships. So that's that's um, ensuring that there's equal equal power sharing from right from the beginning um, and not one party dominating the other. And that's where that equity, equity of access, equity of, of voice uh, is really important. And it's really come off my initial experience as a lawyer where we created partnership agreements, but we just didn't spend enough time up front discussing whether the parties, why the parties were involved and, and, and what was the philosophy behind what they were trying to do. Um, and I just feel that um, we need to test and examine um, whether investing more time at the front end of of those sort of arrangements will make them more effective and more sustainable. We've had 150, or as Mawera and I were discussing the other day, nearly 200 years of this this partnership. How come we still need this? If we're a partnership, shouldn't we be good at it by now? I think there's pockets of good, um, but I think it'll. 
I think it'll be uh, forever pursuing excellence. Um, I'm not sure if we'll ever reach it, but but I think the journey's the important thing. And um, if you if you think back back to 1840, of course, um, in 1835 we had we had. Um, we had Hefakaputanga, which actually allowed, which is you know, it's so important um, in our constitutional makeup because that Declaration of Independence actually laid the groundwork to allow the English Crown to enter into a treaty, um, and so sort of using that as a as an example. Um, part of my work's about looking at what has to be put in place perhaps before before that partnership is formed. And just as with any business partnership or social contract or any type of that arrangement, um, you, you, you're, you're not just an island, you're, you're affected, as we saw during COVID, dramatically by events that, have, that, that occur outside of your, your own thinking or your own, your own borders. So, so Sam, when you ask uh, uh, why why do we need to keep working on it? Um, because that's that's going to be continuing, yeah. Um, and as as you open up that that power for or that space for power, then um, that's going to raise the expectations as well as to what the partnership should look like. So, so what the partnership looks like uh, today will be quite different, I think, in twenty years' time. But hopefully. Hopefully, the framework that I um, that I work on will increase the the space for the partnership to occur, and um, we'll see how how enduring it is. Mm-hmm. And let's take Frankie goes to Hollywood. Two tribes.
Are we living in a land Where sex and horror Are the new One of the things that contributes to the fact that we still haven't got the partnership thing right is that those who are in decision-making positions in our communities at the moment have gone through school and they have heard a version of history that's the colonisers' version of history. So their decision-making is based on that, their thinking is based on that, their worldview is based on that. Um, I think that you're exactly right. In 20 years' time, things are going to be different because now we're actually going to start teaching the real version of Māori history or New Zealand yeah. history. And so those those people that are going through school now will be in those decision-making places and they'll be coming from a completely different perspective. Mm. So all of the decisions up until now have been from a very colonised perspective. Mm. Phil, you're talking about the importance of the, is it pre-negotiation, pre, the relationship before the contract? Invitation to treat, <laughs> really, yeah, it's pre-contract. Yeah. And Mawera's talking about unconditional positive regard yeah. at a societal level. Mm. Are you talking about the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was Quite just thinking that. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and it works at that individual level, it works at that societal level, but it's exactly the same thing, mm. that we, we come together and we listen and we share and we, pre we create a space where we can be honest with each other mm. and from there we build on. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 when, you, when, when people talk at the moment about whakawhanaunatanga, mm. So whakawhanaunatanga is, is now used uh, in two, two ways in particular that I see. One is, one is the, the concept of, of, um, of sharing and opening up and, and just seeing how, you know, presenting some vulnerability from your own person is to, to through that openness, then you can, you can better bind or bond together as a as a rupu group the other one of course is um when you turn up to a hui and it's whakawhanaunatanga time and so it's a process it's a methodology as well exactly so i wonder how that's going to build into my study as well um you know those concepts which are age-old um around building relationships and yeah whakawhanaunatanga is is one of those which is just such a powerful thing. Um, but yeah, I'm just wondering also how that methodology gets, will appear or needs to be built into, into the, to the pre-contract pre negotiation between Māori and non-Māori. But I don't, I, I don't want to keep, I don't want to boil it down to contract, but it is, it is a space where I come out of, so. I've, um, I've had made this observation over the last 10 years or so that we've moved away from a dictate, dictatorial kind of space where some people who have a mandate will dictate that this is how things are going to be to now we really do have this relationship-based decision-making. And it seems quite new mm. and so fragile, but I like it. Yeah. 
I like the engagement. Like people are actually asked for an opinion now instead of told that this is how it's going to be. But I think there's also, I've observed in some organisations, a little bit of virtue signalling. Look at us, we're asking, but we're actually not interested in what you say, but we're asking. Yeah. Yeah, so it'd be good to, I don't know how we call people out in a way that is supportive Mm. So that that doesn't put them off actually putting more effort into being more genuine in their reason for having the process of engagement. Lots of the partnerships that we're talking about are not Greenfield's partnerships. They're, they're ones that are perhaps broken, perhaps struggling along. And the partnership has to be one of restoration or regeneration is is that a different place to start with or, or is that what you can use to bring people together mm. I've got a I've got a sense that that common causes will will bring people together you, you in my experience you quite you, you, you often see within school school environments uh, groups coming together to raise money for a shared purpose um, whether that's you know on the smaller scale the teams going away on a school trip through to um, buildings or or fuddy or um, or larger pieces um, construction um, so yeah I, I am wondering whether it was one of the things that I I wondered around the UN um, sustainable development goals as to the possibility of those being used as a, as a methodology to identify not only whether, whether um, two different groups coming together shared those uh, goals or philosophies, but also I wonder whether it's a way of identifying uh, from organisational points of view, the priorities that they would place those things, what order would they put those in, and whether whether there is some some benefit to match the two groups, um, I guess, yeah, ratings of them against each other, mm. because I suspect if if they were. Uh, uh, totally opposite in order then there's no shared kaupapa and so therefore it'd be thanks to the great hui but see you next time maybe not versus actually we do have enough in common to be able to to move forward together and let's keep exploring that based on those prior those common priorities so that's definitely something that i think the sdgs could could bring to to the conversation because I do think it needs more structure. I think it needs some methodology or framework that allows those conversations to occur with more structure. Um, because of course, uh, we all we're all busy people, and and we are involved in so many groups, aren't mm. we? Yeah. That, yeah. that um, sometimes uh, cutting to the chase faster could be quite helpful. Mm. I agree. One of my other doctorate learners, Hayden Richards, is looking at restoring the community strength of Meraki through 
recognizing Meraki Tanga and then looking at how those sorts of concepts could apply more widely through various government agencies. And one of the things that he's looked at is how many people are actually involved in the community at Meraki, and it's like 10 that are actively involved in the organizational aspects. And about three people with the ability to do things like be responding to local government consultation requests. And they mapped how many requests that they got in a year. And it was a ridiculous number, 117 or something for these three people to to respond to. So there has to be some consideration of the capacity as part of that that partnership do we need investment in i'm not talking about monetary investment although maybe it is in to sort of like even out the sides of the partnerships yeah yeah i do i think you do have to yeah maybe there needs to be an assessment of what's required to enable the partners to from you know in the mahi i'm talking about how to for the two partners to actually start engaging um because you may find uh the need to um and it's based around power and control um one group may have to uh resource the other to actually participate um because if you don't do that then you you're starting from an inequitable position immediately. So how do you even that up? In um, in unconditional positive regard, in its uh, in its original form, as Carl Rogers' model for engagement and psychology practice, um, his role was to meet with the person and to in in the beginning of the conversation identify something that they could build their relationship on so the equity was in their commonality I think where where are we the same what can we understand about each other what's what have we got that we can build this from and that's the that's the positive way forward and that's the unconditional positive regard if you can build your relationship on what you've got in common and it could be the end result it could be some part of the journey and and that's what you're talking about philip is identifying what the purpose is mm. but first of all you have to start with something you can build from yeah yeah it's pretty cool mm. where well, i thought you were going to talk then about something which you told me a few years ago and it's rattled around in my brain since the some variation of social welfare appeal the benefit review benefit panel. review panel, where they decided to balance it or even the playing field by not allowing any lawyers into the into the room, which seems like a good idea on the the face of it. <laughs> yeah, apart from apart from the fact that the, the 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 beneficiary, you presumably or usually a solo mother, had no lawyer, but the the the, the tribunal had a room full of lawyers next door. Yeah, and actually inside the um, the actual panel meeting itself, um, there is a staff member who reads out the legislation that the decision has been based on, while the person who's challenging the decision sits there with a blank face, not understanding a thing that's being said most of the time. 
and um, so you're right from the outside it looks like a wonderful process where you have two managers from other service centres not related to the one where the person has been um, a client a community representative whose job is to make sure natural justice is upheld and the um, the legislation reader for the ministry and the one person who's come in to challenge a decision that could be the difference between them being able to pay their rent or put food on their table or any number of different reasons why these hearings took place. So there's the, the reason for establishing it was right but the problem with the way that it's established is wrong. So we're both talking about, in some way, establishing new rules of partnerships and establishing those sorts of systems. So from your work, what can we feed forward to Philip's work that he's starting <laughs> about how we can better make those sorts of systems? I think they just have to be fair. And, and that comes from engaging as many people from as many different voices as possible and actually listening. Remember just before we were talking about virtue signalling where we ask people for their opinion and then completely disregard it, only so we can say we asked. We actually have to stop that. It's nonsense, but it's happening all the time. It's really destructive because what happens is the party that becomes victim to that then feels disenfranchised, disconnected, disrespected, and then, and that's the end of the relationship. Okay, so I've got to be fair, and I'm going to make stop virtue signalling as number two. I want some more rules. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> be fair, stop virtue signalling, be respectful. Respect is so important. And know what the end looks like. Because you can always have a new beginning once you get to that place, but you have to be going to something. There's no point to just walk for the sake of walking. Why are we doing this? What does the end look like? I like that last one because it talks talks to me about line of sight. So when you've got a line of sight on something, it, it can sustain you through a hang of a lot of really difficult conversations. Yes. And at times we've all been in those hui where, where there is no line of sight and, um, you know, the, the popular phrase is going round in circles. Um, well, if you're not going round in circles, then you're going, you're going forward. So, um, and the other thing too is uh, when you talk around respect, um, to me that breaks down into maybe in remembering that I'm at the start of my study so this conversation is really really useful to me so I've made lots of notes from what you've said um, but I wonder whether under respect uh, both parties uh, need to get to a cultural understanding of the other party as a minimum absolutely so to be able to um, enable the conversations and and the, dis the discovery but I often see see people um, that are trying to engage with a with a different cultural framework um, that uh, haven't even started the journey. So how can you have a conversation between two groups that that they just don't have that really basic connection? So I just just yeah, I just wonder how much prep work everyone has to do before they they get to the get 
get to the hui or the table or the whare or however else it's going to occur. We were talking earlier about karakia. For us, that's just a simple thing. You start important things with a karakia, not necessarily to embrace a, any sort of higher power. For me, because I don't have a, a religious uh, frame, uh, you know, view of the world, but for me, it's the way, it's the thing that binds us. It's the thing that brings us all together, that makes us one group here for a reason. It sets the tone, and yet, and yet, for some organisations, it's just not a thing they ever think of. For me, as soon as it doesn't happen, I go, "Oh, well, I don't belong here," and it's a, it's a terrible feeling. Actually, it's a really unsafe feeling, and it's hard to explain that to people for whom it's they don't who don't have that mm, feeling well, themselves. For me, if it's just, if it's if it the practice is or it's described as it's a prayer, but it's in Dreo, I feel unsafe. Yeah. But if it's that binding together for a common purpose which is what Philip's talking about that seems like a really good thing to do it is yeah so we need to get that kind of understanding across yeah. and that's what we were talking about before with that line of sight you call it a me future thinking is that that this is where we're going and and this and then when we know where we're going when we know where we need to go then we can co-create the path of how we're going to get there but yeah, that, I think that's the important thing is that you start working together right from the very beginning and you identify right from the beginning what are going to be our barriers, especially with our cultural barriers. How do we need to keep each other safe? In that line of sight, isn't the wayfaring, we don't actually know where we're going, we know where we've come from, we've got a vision that there's something out there, but we don't actually know exactly what's out there. Is it okay to have a line of sight towards a, a vague goal? It's it's difficult to have that if you're taking another party on that journey. I guess if you had that same philosophy of it doesn't matter where we're going, we're going to this thing that we think is there. If in some cases that would be fine, especially where you had a lot of similarity and you had the same, where there wasn't great big barriers to the relationship. But I guess, so here's one way of thinking of it, there would be a, a step before let's get in the boats and go, which would be how do we plan the trip? And that's what you could co-create together. That's the end is the end of end of the planning. And then the new beginning is getting in the boats and going as, as a united team. And as a united team, to continue the metaphor, you have trust in the boats, you have trust yeah. in the navigation. You've done it together, you've built the relationship, you've got trust in each other. And then you can go and do this thing together. So then you've stopped being two different groups and you've come together as one over the course of the journey. Then you're starting the new journey as one group. And I guess that's the essence of, of what Tetiriti uh, was, was, was designed to do, which was that um, you, you, you don't have to give up, give up your own identity to be part of, part of something else. Um, and... Yeah, I, I, I'm struggling to think of, of times where groups have, have, well, the times that groups have come together that I've seen Māori and non-Māori and they're just, they haven't got a, a, a set objective. Um, it, it's rare for that group to continue from what I've seen. Um, and so, so... Yeah, the majority of times there's a target, there's mm. there's an objective, there's something that that can that both groups can see, 
Um, but yeah, too many times partnerships that I have also uh, helped support come together uh, just just haven't haven't achieved what the objectives were. Um, and I and I do believe it's at that front end where you invest the most time, um, and and that'll give give the give the returns later. But it needs needs some sort of guidance, some sort of um, some sort of framework to help help that better happen. The other barrier that I have seen a lot in my practice is where there's a lot of patch protection, where a person will derail an entire process like that because they don't want to lose their job or mm. their authority or their power or the, their money. So they will hold on tight to something even though probably they know that they're causing the problem and derail the whole thing. Mm. So I think that people need to, we need to change the, when we put together the teams that go in together, everybody has to be really honest about what their role is and what they would bring to it. Especially where it's something as important as the work that you're doing, Phil, mm. because that's the education of our rangatahi. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. That's everything, really. That's our future. And so, and when you've got, and I imagine it would be quite a tricky situation where you've got people coming from institutes all over the country, and each of them has been very like, oh, I belong to this place or I belong to that place, and 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 letting go of that thinking to be part of the the greater good, that would be a bit tricky. It would require some special personality. Yeah, yeah. And it's ins- it's an ensuring that you pre- that you um, respect the mana of those those people and and help identify the the um their their place with you know, so that they can see their place in oh. in, in the new new um new world. I'm going to squeeze in a track from Caravan Palace. We've been talking about not doing things on your own, doing them together, but we're going to take a lone digger. Sound is ringing, they don't know. 
know what they're missing Legs and good time to lay low Your knees are bending so It's time to get up and let go obsessed recently with the case of the UK post office where a fault in a computer system that they knew about but ignored and instead blamed the the postmasters or the sub postmasters for fraud and theft and falsifying accounts and so on it's taken like 15 years but there's been a, an enormous miscarriage of justice that's, that's it's just been all overturned in appeal and things. And what that's led me to be thinking about is how did that happen despite the values that presumably the UK post office would have on its on its website and, and, and operate under, presumably despite all of the professional bodies, the ethics of the professional bodies that were involved, and so on and so on. And so it leads you to think about, and this was um, Leslie Brook from Otago Polytech's observation to me, that it's something about professional blind spots, that, that somehow we're, even though we're looking at something straight in the face, we still don't see it. Is that the same as not wanting to see it? Or not? does it matter? Mm. So, well, there's a difference. Sometimes we can purposely ignore things just because we don't want to talk about them, the elephant in the room. So it could be that, and I've, I've thought about that since you first talked to me about it, that case that's happened over there, and I wonder how many people actually had to turn their head and not look at it because they didn't want to either take responsibility for it um, or uh, get anyone else in trouble for it. But it's kind of it's it's also the opposite of unconditional positive regard. Absolutely. If you are making the presumption that the machine is right, 
and the people are stealing from you. But they, but people knew that the machine wasn't right and didn't do anything about it. That's immoral. Mm. And that leads me to, we were talking before about the, the boy story. You're talking about how your, your practitioner thesis involves a whole pile of, of narratives, you know, fictionalised narratives. And one of them is the story of the boy, which we've talked on the show before, um, that <laughs> needs to get a driver's licence. And despite the attempts of the agencies, it doesn't happen. Mm. And the outcome, which you so um, effectively say is they need to find better rangitaki to help. Yeah, exactly. Blame, which, the, blame the victim. Which is something about systems trying to achieve things and not managing to do it. Yeah, and then needing to hold someone else responsible so they don't look inept. So they blame the people they're supposed to help for failing. And gosh, we see that everywhere. We see that in justice, we see that in education, we see it in health, we see it all through the whole country. We're really good at pointing a finger and saying it was your fault. But that's the myth of choice too. That brings in that whole notion of choice being an absolute myth for so many people. That we they that the choices aren't available? Well or we that they are and they don't or what what's that mean? Well, so choice we say that people um, have a choice to smoke cigarettes for example but if your parents were both cigarette smokers and you were raised in that environment where that was your social norm and then at some point someone gave you a cigarette and you started smoking it then you're just a continuation of that social norm so yes you had a technically you had a choice to put the cigarette in your mouth and inhale but did you actually really have a choice it was an inevitable outcome that you were going to become a smoker because that was your social norm. So often we point fingers at people and say you had a choice for things that weren't a choice. We're really good at that. Mm. I think we confuse the two English words, options and choices. Yeah. So we say um, you've, got a, you've, got, you've got two choices here. So in fact, when someone says that, they're imposing options that have been created by by, a third, by someone else. So it, it's, and, and, and obviously co-design is attempting to create a wider range of, of options or choices between, between those involved in the co-design process. But generally our society creates, creates the options or choices and then gives you the choice of those options so <laughs> so they're not really choices <laughs> no they're not no they're not so i think we need to examine the um the usage of those words agree yeah english language is such a wonderful thing isn't it so philip mawira's story about the boy talks about organizations who have committed to making a difference and somehow conspiring suggests agency it's probably more ineptness in achieving those things so how do we get past that well-meaning ineptitude to actual partnerships that make a difference i think you have to start by examining concepts like unconscious bias um you know um the makeup of of organizations recreating themselves 
and that that comes back to that virtue signaling but without structurally changing um, the skills and competencies that sit within within an organization any organization that wishes to engage with another culture needs at the very least a minimum level of competency and that competency has to have sufficient capability um, and uh, that means you just can't just rely on one person with an organisation with that cultural capability to deliver everything that an organisation needs to be able to to deliver um, for for the the mix of society that we have. So I think it starts with with the organisation, which is always made up of people, um, making sure that they get their own house in order first and get their cultural competency up to a level so that so that they're not learning on the job we don't um we don't uh, always rely rely on um turning up to any any meeting with with other professionals without any preparation i think i think the preparation before before organizations come together is is really important and I don't think it's being done at the moment as well as it should be. I see that in governance contexts all the time people turning up to board meetings having never opened their board pack and so they're coming to make decisions that are sometimes really important without having any done any preparation beforehand they, they're hearing about it for the first time sitting at the board table and participating in the debate so we, we've, we've got to get rid of that that way of thinking that says that it's okay to sit in these positions of authority when you don't actually want to do the work. Mm, mm. I mean, this conversation is really, really valuable for me because I'm, I'm thinking whether there's whether there's some some, some minimum professional standards that are required uh, to, to not only in their governance space but within within those that wish to enter into partnerships with Maori, for example. Maybe we need to expand those those um, the basics of what what you have to have before you front up to the table. Um, maybe that's an ingredient, mm. and I'll be exploring that over the next year and a half. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I want to see the outcome of that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel the pressure already. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had better wrap this up. Best of luck to both of you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. In the short term and the Let's go for medium term, <laughs> respectively, and and in the short term, the medium and long term for both of you. In more general things, we've been talking about uh, partnerships and unconditional positive regard and the relationships between those models of practice for actually achieving structural change that makes a difference. I have been talking with... Philip Alexander Crawford and Mawera Karatai. We're in Mawera's kitchen. Thank you very much, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. And we're going out to George Michael. One more try. And that was Sustainable Lands. I'm Samuel Mann. We hope you enjoyed the show.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.